Good to see everybody again tonight. Um, numbers seem to be increasing. Maybe it's the longer days and it's uh, easier for people to get here and get home comfortably. I sometimes do wonder why people come here on a Sunday night. Um, English people don't often comment on, uh, don't often give much feedback. Uh, and um, it's nice when we get it. Well, usually nice. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> Sometimes not so nice. But uh, if anybody wants to use our contact page uh, on the website uh, or write a letter, I'm very welcome to do so. And, uh, let me know why they come here on Sunday nights. It's, um, I imagine it's because beginning of a week, it's useful to people just to come here and make uh, a statement, a personal statement of of. Uh, Commitment to something that's important, valuable uh, to you, and uh, and sitting together as a group and is valuable. I certainly appreciate having opportunity to sit together with you as a as a group together, um, and also uh, in terms of the dhamma talks that are given. Um, I don't see, you know, people don't get up after the meditation chanting and walk out. They, they stay around to listen to the Dhamma talk. So presumably it's because they want to. And what I hope uh, people are getting out of it is some inspiration for uh, your own contemplations, something to think about, basically. Uh, a reminder of something that we share, uh, valuing of something that's beyond a lot of what goes on uh, in, in daily life. Uh, the, what I, I refer to is the, the casual concerns of life. There are there are real concerns. There are um, there are reality issues for us, and as Buddhists, we would call uh, dhamma questions that we we are all asking and um, inquiring into. And to be able to do this as a community, I value and appreciate, and I assume that's also why you come here on a Sunday night. And why people occasionally ask questions, and somebody's asked a question tonight. Thank you very much, which is good. But also, uh, just before I go into this question, I did want to also say something about uh, last week's Dhamma talk. Um, those of you that were here will perhaps remember that uh, somebody asked a question about the place of women in Buddhism. And um, I spoke for about 30 or 40 minutes on the subject, and generally felt quite comfortable about what I had to say and I won't go into it again at this point but um, it's a very tricky question because all of us are aware I'm sure of the um, the struggles that there are over gender issues uh, not just in the realm of religion but in society in general and, and all religions got a lot to answer for for the uh, inequalities and injustices that um, have been perpetrated and 
And certainly Buddhism is not spared from any of this. And so I, I didn't uh, spend a lot of time last week going into that. I didn't feel that was being asked for in the question, and that's not what came to me anyway. But afterwards, um, a few people did talk about it, and, and, and I inquired with some, some people, monastic community and lay men and women, and, and there was quite a variety of uh, responses. Um, most people, it seems, were quite happy with the contemplation that I led, but not everybody. Some people were, were a little bit uncertain about it. And so uh, I, I would like to say that I, I am aware that this is a, a, you know, a major issue and something that can benefit from um, focused attention and, and discussion and dialogue uh, within the monastic community, between the monastic and lay community also. And if there is an opportunity uh, for taking that further, if people want that, well, then I'm certainly open to it. And also I'd like to say that if, if there was anything I mentioned last week that was offensive or, or painful or hurtful to anybody, then I'd, I'd like to apologize for that. That certainly was not my, my intention. And not just last week, as far as that goes, anything that I've done in the past, because I can look back over my years as a monk and well, I'm in, in the community that I've lived in with the there are other monks that I've lived with, and you know, I, I, I feel hugely embarrassed some of the things that have gone on over the years, um, things that have been said and done in the community, or, or I myself have done. And, and so, if there's anything I can do to uh, put that right, please don't hesitate to let me know because I, I'm, I'm very happy to apologize. I, I feel a lot of the things that have gone on in the past have, have been very regrettable. and and embarrassing when I, when I think about it. But, having said all that, again, going back to what we talked about last week, was that um, what I value most is the opportunity to do this, to look into the essence of our practice together, uh, to find out, to remember what is really important. You know, what is it that's beyond male and female? What is it that's beyond struggle? Where can we find real peace and real freedom? So anything that's in support of that, that I'm in support of. Uh, now this evening's question, somebody has written asking, could you explain the difference between rebirth, reincarnation and transmigration with regard to the six realms of life? Is the movement between the six realms a real condition or is this purely in the mind? Okay. Well, very briefly, to address the difference between rebirth, reincarnation, and so on, because that's kind of technical, and I, I always try to avoid getting into heady things in our meeting, because this is, a, as far as I'm concerned, a, a practice situation where we're here together to get more conscious and deepen in our practice. But these, these technical questions do come up, and, and fair enough. So just very briefly, the difference between what's referred to as rebirth and reincarnation. Well, the theory of reincarnation is predominantly a theistic belief system which is held by uh, Hindus, um, you could say Hindus, and there, there are probably other religions, based on the idea that there's a substantial something called a soul which goes from one life to another, a substantial something. 
that, that moves on. And, and there's, I think, um, this is very simplistic, but you know, just to, I think we have to generalize a little bit. Just to, the Hindus in generally, in generally believe that, that this, uh, this self, this soul, has the accumulation of all the karma that we've done in the past, and you have to work a very long time to burn off all this karma. And, and so it's uh, reincarnation. There's something that's being reincarnated each birth. Um, so there's a joke associated with that, which you, I think last time I told it, nobody seemed to appreciate. It was, do you remember it was about being, being reborn as a, as a tin of condensed milk? They couldn't see the point of it. <laughs> we have to understand that carnation is... is, is <laughs> okay. Some people understand. So anyway, um, <laughs> um, so that's the reincarnation concept, is there's a substantial something that gets reborn each time. The Buddha refuted this, and with his insight, said there isn't any substantial something, but there's an ongoing process. And he used the metaphor of something burning. You know, with, with a flame burning, it looks like there's something, but actually there isn't a thing Called, you know, we can talk about the flame, but the flame is a process. He wanted to make you know, this very clear that he didn't go along with the idea of a, a solid self. There's the appearance of a self. And, you know, we talk about me, 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 mine, 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 you, you, and yours, and so on, and that kind of reaffirms this selfhood and becomes a major issue for us. But the Buddha's insight and, and his teaching on anatta, of not-self, is actually you know, an encouragement for us to look into this perception of self. Is this really what it looks like? From his perspective, it was not what it looked like. Yeah, it's like a mirage which looks like water, but no matter how much you want it to be water and how hard you run after it, it will not quench your thirst. Now, likewise, the felt reality that we talk, call to me it really feels like a substantial ultimate reality, but the Buddha said it's not. That's just it's a delusion, an hallucination. And we, as a result, we take it, invest all our energy into something that's not real. You know, literally, like running after a, a, a mirage, thinking it's going to quench our thirst. Gratifying all my desires and holding on to all my possessions and valuing me too much uh, increases our frustration and disappointment and and it causes all sorts of squabbles and, and misery in our lives. So when he talked about rebirth, he was saying that this, this process of being born and dying, born and dying, which just happens all the time, I think the Abhidharmists say it happens 16 times a second, you know, something like that. I mean, it's a process of being born and dying, born and dying, that, that uh, happens all the time. Just because the body dies does not mean to say this process finishes. The consciousness, the force of consciousness, which is uh, kept alive uh, by our habits of clinging, uh, when this form falls away, as according to the laws of nature, it will, everything that's born dies, this building will collapse, the, the planet will eventually dissolve, and we don't have to be hurry to help it, but everything that's arisen will pass away, everything that's born dies, and so that's the nature, and there's nothing wrong with that. So when this physical form dies, uh, the consciousness, because for most of us, there's still the habit of grasping and really wanting to be somebody, 
it looks for another form and grasping will be the cause that takes place, that consciousness entering into a new form, which will be a fetus at that stage, somewhere along the line between conception and birth. I don't think the Buddhist scriptures are, are very clear on exactly what point it is. Um, I think it, it suggests it can be from any time from conception right up until quite a few months down the line. The consciousness enters the fetus and is prepared for a rebirth experience. Well, I would say actually uh, the rebirth takes place at the moment. The consciousness enters the fetus. Uh, the fact that the fetus is not separate from the, the host, the mother, uh, does mean to say the life is not there. So, so that's the concept of rebirth very, very briefly and generally and, and, and something about how it differs from the concept of reincarnation. I'm sure it's a lot more subtle and sophisticated than that, and, but hopefully that satisfies you know, for the sake of, of this discussion. And transmigration with the realms, with regard to the six realms of life, is the movement between the six realms a real condition, or is this purely in the mind? Well, the way the Buddha talked about it, if you read the scriptures, the way the Buddha talked about it was it's a real condition. Um, however, if we have trouble grasping it, literally, uh, for those of you who, anybody who's not sure, the six realms of existence, uh, there's, um, there's the high gods, the low gods, the fighting gods, the human beings, the uh, hungry ghosts, the animals, and the hell realms, six realms of existence. And Buddhist cosmology talks about these six realms, broken up into many more realms, uh, celestial realms. Uh, they've got many sub-realms and uh, varying degrees of subtlety. Um, and the, the concept is that according to the karma that we make, uh, our consciousness is, fits into the frequency, if you like, one of these realms. Each realm's got a frequency. And depending on the kind of consciousness that we cultivate in, in, our, in this life, then at the end of this life, then it basically just is drawn into that actual realm, into that existence, that physical existence, and takes birth. And uh, the human realm is characterized by, you know, only having this sort of limited lifespan, um, whatever, 60, 70, 80 years old, um, generally speaking, at the moment. Apparently in previous times it was a lot longer. It was a lot shorter recently, but then way, way back, before human beings degenerated, it was a, a lot longer. Animals have, a, generally speaking, a, a lot shorter life, generally speaking, a few turtles around, a bit longer than, than us. But, uh, but then the, uh, the God realms, you know, you can be up there for eons. I mean, you, just, you, know, you can't count the length of time. You can be stuck up there playing your harp or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> you're getting off on and the hell realm sadly also um, you can be down there for a very long time I should say perhaps at this stage that these days uh, after having been a Buddhist for about 35 years and a monk for about 31 or 2 years I just I just find it fits, I don't have a problem with it uh, I just think well that's the closest approximation that this level of consciousness can get to reality I don't necessarily believe it's an absolute accurate literal presentation of reality it's an approximation and 
if consciousness is developed and, 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 and becomes more subtle, well then, we ourselves know what it's like in the consciousness. You go on retreat and after a few days on retreat, your mind becomes more subtle and you can just read things, pick up things. Even the physical senses become heightened, not to mention the, the mind sense. You can see more and you wake up and you're bright and, and you understand more clearly and more quickly. Whereas if we're staying up late and eating loads of junk food and talking a lot and the, the, the consciousness kind of goes to a coarser frequency, so to speak, and we're not seeing it so clearly or understanding so well. So, so we can understand that on that mundane level. Well, from the Buddhist perspective, it's possible to refine consciousness very, very highly to the point where you can see quite directly uh, into these other realms of existence. And this is not just the Buddha. Many other religions and teachers have, uh, have talked about their experience of visiting the other realms. Now, in some other teachings, they believe that these, these realms are ultimate, that, that hell, for instance, is a permanent condition. And if you go down there, that's it forever. And, and uh, you've heard me speak before, I'm sure, about how I feel about what a, what a, a really, really unfortunate thing, thing that is to teach to anybody. The intimidation that comes from that it can be very psychologically damaging. Perhaps the same could be said, but not in the same way, about the idea of heaven being permanent. Uh, that um, you, you can, if you get a, a ticket into the heavenly realms, you can you can go up there forever. Basically, that's it, forever. And I heard a, a um, nice story about this of, from uh, a friend of mine who. Her son, it was, was, was a, I think, a preacher in the Episcopalian Church in America. We don't have that here, do we? Episcopalian is uh, the American version of the Church of England, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah. Okay. That's good enough. Okay. Um, anyway, he was this this uh, preacher in America, and he was driving across country and in his car with his wife and his little boy in the back. I don't know. His little boy was about ten years old or something, and uh, they picked up a hitchhiker. And, and the hitchhiker, uh, it turned out, was, was a fundamentalist, uh, evangelical fundamentalist of a particular variety. And it wasn't very long before he started trying to save these people in the car, even though it was a vicar. You know, he thought he must have missed this opportunity because this vicar didn't realize that the world was going to come to an end in two years' time. And not only that, but there was only a certain number of people who were going to go to heaven. I don't know, was it, you know, 2,500 or something rather? We're going to go to heaven, and everybody else was going down forever. And so he was you know, pointing this out and telling everybody how you know you must get into this particular uh, group, otherwise you're going to go down. And and the little boy, he said, "Oh, you know," he said, "If I had a ticket to go to heaven, I think I'd give it to my friend." <laughs> very, very beautiful little. Sometimes children come out with just the right things at the right times. <laughs> so anyway, um, so the Buddha's insight was that uh, these different realms of existence do exist, and and we have the good fortune as human beings to cultivate a consciousness, which uh, hopefully will avoid us suffering the consequences of going into the lower realms. But you don't necessarily also want to get just stuck in one of the heavenly realms because they're not, you know, you just get blissed out up there for a long time and 
and then you can apparently you can drop down to one of the very low ones depending again on what your karma is and what your karmic uh, storehouse is all about but uh, so this question is really about whether this is literal or whether this is a mind state well just to say that the Buddha did talk about it as a literal thing but he didn't he, he didn't say you have to believe this and so I think it's really important to, to take that on board, this question of belief and how we relate to the Buddha's teachings. He did say uh, that to close your mind to these things is very unskillful and will have unfortunate consequences because we don't know that it's not true. We may believe that it's not true, but we don't know that it's not true. And so to really grasp at a belief that it's not true when in fact we don't know that it's not true is unskillful, it's very limiting, and, and definitely to be discouraged. So to keep an open mind about it, uh, at the very least, good scientists, you know, a good scientific approach, not to grasp at this, at any aspect um, of these teachings, uh, even if we do trust in them, to not grasp at it in a fixed way, saying this is absolutely true, uh, when in fact we don't know it to be absolutely true. I got a letter this week from somebody, somebody in Ireland wrote and they had read a book of mine and were mildly impressed um, but wanted to point out that Jesus was better and that it would do me good to actually recognize that Jesus' argument was better than the Buddha's because it was more scientific and he felt that by presenting this angle of the Buddha you know, being more scientific that I would be encouraged to uh, take Jesus into my life and be saved and he was seriously concerned about me and wanted to offer this encouragement and I thank him for that but I am a little puzzled that he thought coming up with a scientific argument would convince me because whilst I don't see any conflict between good science and good religion not at all quite the opposite I think they can help each other and do help each other uh, but that doesn't negate uh, the function of faith. You can be a good scientist and still have faith and trust. Uh, and so this particular question here, talking about is it real or is it a mind state, mm. I think it's okay to say we don't know for sure. We certainly can relate to it as mind states. That's not difficult. You can be born in heaven. I, 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 what would I think I would be born in heaven if I was able to go to America and attend a concert that is going to be put on very soon by a very, very well-established classical orchestra playing the Dead Symphony Number no. Six. Now you may not have heard of this, but there's a classical orchestra that actually, since Saint Jerry passed away many years ago <laughs> you see what I believe in um, St. Jerry Garcia passed away and this guy has been working on this symphony ever since and it's about to be performed the dead music by a classical symphony orchestra and now I think that would take me to heaven you can get reborn in heaven right here and now you know, food can do it if you're French particularly I mean the French you know, it's, they're always doing it with food and music can do it Meditation can do it. 
you can get into very elevated, beautiful, beautiful states of consciousness that, that um, if, we, if we grasp at the pleasure, uh, so there's, a, there's, there's I am born in that moment. And it feels wonderful. I mean, it isn't it? You know, the body can trill. You know what it's like. You know, when the energy is just coursing through your body and you just feel like, you know, you're on open your eyes and you think you're going to be radiating, you know, because you feel so good. And well, that's, you know, heavenly beings are like that. Apparently, real heavenly beings, they are luminous beings. Apparently, some people can see them. And then the, uh, the fighting gods realms, you can get reborn there. You just turn on Prime Minister's Question Time on Wednesday at 12 o'clock and listen to these fighting gods. Incredibly intelligent, articulate men and women. It's, I think it's fascinating to listen to how they, they put these brilliant arguments and they're just really having a go at each other but not getting angry. Well, hopefully not. That's you know, shameless if they get angry. But, but really, knowing how to make a forceful argument, they love power. They really love power. <laughs> they're just, just getting off on it. They're feeding on it. And that's the characteristic of, of these fighting gods, these hungry gods. Oh, sorry, fighting gods. They, that you can get born into that realm. And uh, human beings will be reasonably acquainted with. And then the um, animal realm, well, you know, we talked about this recently, where, well, it's how easy it is just to get caught up in the animal passions, reactivity, no perspective, no mindfulness at all. And we can just grasp at our animal instincts and become them and there's something that really alive about that you know like when you just you just feel so you know just angry at somebody and you can get that just want to just want you know it's not you don't want to necessarily go and bite their leg <laughs> like some animals do but yeah course something like that <laughs> Well, some people do that, don't they? Tyson, he bit somebody's ear off, didn't he? Was that Mike Tyson? I mean, getting caught up in that, that kind of quality of consciousness. that level of Or the next lower realm is the hungry ghosts. And again, I think we talked about going into the big market in Newcastle. If you want to see hungry ghosts, there they are. Or standing at their watering holes, feeding their addictions. It's got a certain aliveness to it. You know, there's passion and energy there, but it's not cool. It's hot, and the image that um, the classic, the traditional image of, of the beings in the hungry ghost realms is these beings with big bellies, big fat beer pot bellies, and little weeny throats, and they're swallowing molten lead because it burns the passion. It burns as you consume it, as you take heroin or or crack or whatever else your preferred drug is. It, it, it burns in the process and it never satisfies you. The neck is too small and so you've got this big, hungry, insatiable greed. Um, so, and we can get a bit reborn in that realm. Uh, and then the hell realms, which we can get reborn in as a mental state. You get really possessed, not just mildly <clears throat> angry, or, uh, but really possessed by anger, possessed by terror, uh, possessed by some terribly negative state. So I think we can feel fine about um, saying, well, we don't know whether these are literal states or not because we don't know them. People in traditional Buddhist cultures will get brought up with this understanding and just take it on, but that doesn't mean to say they know either. Those of us who get brought up 
in a, the context of a Christian culture, have a you know, one-life theory where you go to heaven or hell afterwards, or if it's more of a secular process of conditioning and we manage to avoid that view, well, then we have a you die and that's it view. But even that we don't know. So an appropriate attitude would be just say, well, this is very interesting. And uh, certainly to transmigrate through the six realms of existence in daily life is something that we can contemplate uh, and learn from just to see how grasping leads to birth. And that the human realm is really a, really a real privilege. To be born as a human being is a real privilege because this is where we have the frustration and the pain and the irritation of, of the animal body but we have the intelligence and the capacity for reflecting of the gods. And this place in the middle, which is where the Buddha got enlightened, he got enlightened as a human being, not as a god or not in the hell realms, but as a human being, because this is the perfect level of frustration. This is the optimum frequency you know, to be as a human being. I'm very fortunate and you know, I should quote that, uh, that image, that the classic image the Buddha gave of the, the, the blind turtle swimming around in the ocean and um, the chances of being born as a human being, it's as likely as that turtle sticking his head up and accidentally putting his head through a hole in a piece of driftwood that's floating around in the ocean. Now, yeah, that's the kind of traditional Buddhist image that, in other words, it's, it's very rare to be, to occupy the human realm. Taken literally, well, it means you well, really better be careful because next time I might be a frog yeah, or, <laughs> or a, you know, I don't know, a sheepdog. I, got, I feel a great affinity with sheep. So uh, whatever. Or, um, or get born in some part on the planet where you don't have access to the Buddhist teachings or get born with, without the mental faculties to contemplate the Buddhist teachings. Uh, or get born without good health. Yeah. To be born as a physical human being with the intelligence and the uh, impulse and the access to the Buddhist teachings is very rare, literally speaking. But also, figuratively speaking, or if you take it as a metaphor, we can see um, how much of our day are we behaving like human beings, reflective. Really reflecting on the... Uh, the experience, the nature of our experience. You, some of you will have seen what's traditionally called the Tibetan Wheel of Life, that depiction, that great big tanka. You see there's a monstrous animal biting this wheel, and that's um, the image of, of death consuming uh, everything. Uh, everything is born and dies. And in the very middle of that wheel, you'll see uh, a rooster eating the tail of... A snake eating a tail of a pig, eating the tail of the rooster, eating the tail of the snake, eating the tail of the going around and around. That's greed, aversion and delusion circling around in the very hub of this wheel. And the very centre of that wheel, it's painted light blue, which is the colour of emptiness, that even greed, aversion and delusion in terms of reality are empty. And, so, and, then, and then you have the six realms depicted. And in the human realm, each of these realms has got a Buddha in it, in the human realm, uh, the Buddha is a mendicant monk holding an alms bowl, uh, and he's basically just going around 
maximizing on the opportunity to develop uh, the reflective faculty, the reflective intelligence that human beings have. In the heavenly realms, he's, he's playing a musical instrument because you know, beings who like nice, subtle things, you've got to entertain them before you can give them the teachings. You can't give them the Four Noble Truths because they won't listen to you. So you've got to play music or put on some nice incense or something to make them feel good uh, before you can give them any teachings. But in the human realm, uh, what's symbolized and encouraged is really maximizing on this opportunity we have to reflect on the nature of experience because this is the, this is the key. Yeah. This is the key that undoes the doors of delusion when we use this reflective intelligence Here's the experience, here's the cause of the experience, and here's the opportunity to relate to the experience in, in this way. You know, we can have the experience of being born into a happy state when our friends come around to visit and food's good and feel healthy. And you know, I know, when, when I've got a headache, it feels like I've always had a headache. It always mystifies me, but sometimes <laughs> when I haven't got a headache, I don't think about not having a headache. But when I've got a headache, I feel I've always had a headache, and, and it's horrible. But uh, it's not true, because when I haven't got a headache, I, I haven't got a headache. But that's, what, that's the nature of grasping. When we grasp, when we get born into a state, we think we're always going to be in that state. And so we can observe this in daily life. We can see we're, you know, we're getting born into a, a happy state. We get possessed by that, and, but then we die out of it. And then we get born into a boring state or a disappointed state. and We get born into a fighting God state where we've got power and you're going to control everybody and become a control freak or whatever. Grasping is the cause of birth. And if we use our reflective intelligence, we can see that this is the birth and death process going on. So this is what human beings can do and are encouraged to do. And encouraged to reflect on the very nature of belief. You know, what, what happens when we hold a belief too tightly? You know, that story you probably heard me tell before, uh, rehashing all my old stories tonight. Um, when I was walking along the beach in New Zealand once, some, this, this bunch of people started walking towards me and I kind of, I don't know how much I pick up and how much I attract these people, but sometimes I, when I travel I seem to get these fundamentalist evangelicals seem to just kind of come to me and maybe it was in my past life I sometimes think that in my past life I was one of these evangelical fundamentalist Bible bashers myself hellfire and brimstone and so I kind of cop it you know big time in this life so anyway here they were these people coming towards me and sure enough this this one guy and the leader of them comes up and says hi how you doing what do you believe in I thought oh here we go again and and so I said, no, he, he said, no, he said, what are you? What are you, mate? <laughs> and I said, hiya, mate, I'm a Buddhist. And, uh, and he says, what do you believe in? I said, I believe in not making a problem out of anything. What do you believe in? And he said, well, I, you know, the rest of it, I'm sure you know how it went. Not making a problem out of anything is basically what I believe Buddhism is about that we are the creators of the problems of our life. And I don't believe that's an obligation. I don't believe it's up to somebody else to take away my problems. On one level, actually, I, I must confess, there is still some part of me that does believe that, that, 
that there really is somebody who's looking after me. You know, the kind of childish, infantile part of me that thinks there's somebody out there who's really responsible for me, that just really feels, I'm no, I'm not responsible for this suffering. But my most conscious belief and conviction and faith and trust is that now I'm not, nobody else is responsible for me, that I am responsible for this, and that I don't have to make a problem out of anything. If I do, it's because I choose to. Okay, true, a lot of these choices are made out of unawareness, conditioned by ignorance, but still the responsibility is here. And so this is something that we're encouraged to use our reflective intelligence to inquire into. How do we hold beliefs? If, you, if we hold Buddhist teachings too tightly, well, you know, when somebody asks us questions like that, we get all defensive and we can come out with things that are contentious or, or yeah, get into an argument. Or anything in daily life, if we, if we hold our beliefs, you know, like, like the body, you know, the belief we have that this body is me and mine. And then what happens, you know, when, when we're dying, and if you've seen people dying, and, and there's that belief still intact, well then there's a terrible struggle, because what's happening to me if I believe I am the body? And, uh, there was an interesting article on the news recently, um, where somebody took their beliefs uh, too tightly. It was the doctor. I don't know if you heard this. It's, it's, not, it's a kind of sad story, really, but also just a little bit funny, that um, this guy got a diagnosis to say that he had cancer. Uh, was it of the spleen? And whatever, for sure, he was only going to live for six months. I don't know if you, you saw this, right? And so he said, right, okay, that's it. So he spent all the money he had. He had a great time for six months. And then coming near the six months, all he was left with actually was a suit and tie that he wanted to be buried in. And then the doctor got in touch and said, oops, <laughs> sorry, um, that was a mistaken diagnosis. Now, to some extent, he was probably annoyed, but to some extent also probably pleased. And so, you know, we can empathize with the part of him that was, was pleased and hope that he's recovered from it. But, you know, when you go to see the doctor and the doctor tells you something, we don't want to believe what the doctor says because doctors, as helpful as they are, are sometimes wrong. As well, religious experts, you know, all these religious experts who, you know, come on with enthusiasm and bright eyes and confidence, and they can be wrong. You know, I mean, I've, I was talking to somebody recently, uh, a monk I've known for many years, and he said, oh, you know, people were asked to republish some of my earlier material. I just feel so embarrassed. I don't want to. Monks have written things full of enthusiasm and confidence about the holy life. And then, you know, a few months down the line, they've disrobed and <laughs> run off doing something else. Um, so you don't want to believe what religious authorities say. We don't want to believe what the doctor says, but we don't want to disbelieve. That's... That's how I see the Buddhist approach to these things. Belief is an important function of the mind. But how do we relate to our beliefs? Yeah. Yeah. I, I choose to assume an optimistic disposition uh, in life in general. 
because I believe that that affects the outcome of things. If I, if I have a pessimistic view of what's happening, it's not difficult to have a pessimistic view. I could have one. Um, I see a lot of other people have pessimistic views, but uh, my feeling is, my perception is, my belief is that that has an effect on the future. So, but that doesn't mean to say that because I have an optimistic view of things that I absolutely believe that everything in the future is going to be wonderful. Yeah, I, that belief, one can hold that belief that things are you know, going to be okay as a functional belief. And like my attitude towards th this question really about reincarnation or rebirth, yeah, I see it as a functional belief. Actually, it has a very good effect on, on me. I appreciate the effect that that has on me. But that doesn't mean it's, that means we're not grasping at that belief. That's important. So in Buddhism, whether it's to do with rebirth or to do with any of the teachings, um, trust and faith, and enjoying and benefiting from the confidence that comes from trusting, and having faith and feeling safe with these teachings is very important. But faith and trust and belief is not knowledge. It's powerful and it affects the way we behave. I often think about the idea of using a map. You know, if I go to a foreign country and I want to find my way around this foreign country and somebody gives me a map, well, that's useful, thank you. But, you know, you don't know, can you trust the map? You don't know. Thousands and thousands of other people, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years have trusted this map. You say, okay, well, that's a good enough reason. They say they've trusted it and it's worked for them. So it's a good enough reason to take that map. But you still don't believe it absolutely. You know, you travel along the course that's indicated by the map, but you keep checking, say, does this accord with... Reality, you know, the rivers here, mountains there, swamps there, and so on. Is this getting me where in the direction I want to go in? And if you say yes, oh yes, yes, there's this, yes, yes, oh yes, okay. Well, as we have that experience, well, then the faith is affirmed. But we inspect that faith, we question the faith. We don't, we don't just grasp at the faith because of the good feeling that comes from it. And that's something that our reflective intelligence can inform us about, you know, what happens when you grasp at a belief and you feel you're right? I know, I can really get off on that. I am really, you really get a rush. Because grasping brings about a certain kind of constriction. And it's just the same as, you know, when there's, you know, adrenaline and your blood vessels constrict and then you've got this energy to do something, to move, which has got the appropriate function on that level. Well, likewise, you know, grasping psychically can bring about a kind of constriction which can increase energy. You know, that's why you have all these ranting, you know, fanatical fundamentalists. And I don't just mean religious ones, you know, you know ecological ones or political ones or military ones, you know, to rouse the troops so they can become very effective. But that's something we can reflect on. And see, well, you know, just grasping at beliefs, just because it gives you a rush, doesn't mean to say that it's safe or trustworthy. Yeah. And what the, the Buddha's teaching encourages us and, uh, to consider the possibility of going beyond all belief and arriving at what the Buddha called jnana dasana, 
or insight knowledge, which is quite different from belief or trust, but actually talking about real seeing, direct seeing. And personally, I find this a great inspiration and always have done ever since as a, as a teenager. I used, to, um, I used to sometimes, even as a kid, I, I, would, I was taken along to these church rallies. I remember lying about these things and feeling really bad about it because, you know, if you want to be in the in crowd, you, you know, you have to be saved. And so I used to feel really guilty about lying about being saved. But then uh, for later on, I, I used to think, well, you know, what happens if I was in a situation where it was a political rally and some f- the fervor of the group, some charismatic speaker, you know, like somebody like Hitler, you know, what would I have done if I'd been around Hitler? Would I have, you know, joined in? Because yeah, I certainly, you know, I got conned on this level. I betrayed myself on this level. And that used to really worry me. I used to feel really anxious about what would happen if I was in that sort of situation. And then the Buddhist teaching came along and said, well, it is possible to get to a place where there's unshakable confidence. Not just because you're grasping at a belief, not just because you're taking side for or against an opinion, but because the consciousness is so aligned with reality that you see clearly and when the consciousness is at that place, well, then that being is not capable of actually doing anything uh, that breaks the five precepts. But that's, again, not something to believe in. You know, we're not just supposed to, oh, I believe in soda punters. You know, find me a saint that I can, you know, put up and worship. Well, uh, paying respect to the teacher is, is, uh, is skillful. But we don't go for refuge to the teacher, at least not in Theravadan Buddhism. We don't go for refuge to the teacher, we go for refuge to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, the Sangha. These are the ultimate refuges. Nati me saranang anyang buddho me saranang warang e tena satchawajena soti me hondasapada. I go for refuge to the Buddha. The Buddha is my only refuge. This is not talking about our relative refuges, you know. I go for refuge sometimes to a good sleep. You know, what I, all I want right now is a good sleep. You know, and, but that's not an ultimate refuge. We know that you know, it's not an ultimate refuge. It doesn't cure everything. Or going for refuge to St. Jerry, you know, or whoever your favorite musician is. Uh, Jerry died. <laughs> you know, or a political agenda or, or a sophisticated philosophy. We can go for relative refuge to these things and find some security and some um, encouragement and support. But grasping at these relative refuges is not the path to freedom from the Buddhist perspective. So even the teachings on the transmigration through the six realms of existence is not something that we have to grasp at, but it is something that we're encouraged to keep our minds open to. So I hope this is useful for your contemplations. Thank you very much this evening for your attention.